Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me. So tell me, Ravinder, what are your thoughts now on last week's show since you've had some time to digest the information? I have indeed. I like spending some time thinking about the uh, information and trying to find out practical applications. I think the important thing that I got from last week's show has to do with numbers. Um, You know, one of the things the guest talked about was the fact that, you know, occasionally we hear these stories about cops doing some really cool things like the guy on the street who doesn't have any shoes and they go out and buy shoes for them and occasionally those videos go viral but um, what your guest was talking about was how common that is you know we often hear about teachers doing that in in the classroom you know teachers often dip into their own pockets to buy supplies for the kids and buy extra things that the kids may need but I wasn't aware it was as common as it is for the police to do the same thing as well you know, Wanda Morgenstein commented on uh, last week's show, and I think she had a, had a really important point. You know, if you think you understand law enforcement or you, you just really think, you know, they are out to lunch, they're the bad guys or whatever else, you know, call your local uh, department, your local police department and tell them you want to ride along. That is the most educational thing I think you can possibly know. Not only do, does law enforcement do exactly what you're talking about. They're always helping out someone. And, and, and I've had that personal experience, you know. Um, but they deal with things that you just can't imagine that they deal with. I mean, things that really belong to the Department of Social Services or or there are just huge gaps. I mean, our society wants it dealt with, but, but there's nothing there to deal with it. And so they, they get all those leftovers, you know. And, and you know, hey, you can pick up a homeless guy who is, is freezing and take him to a shelter and he upchucks all over your car and, and you, you know, you've got to take the time to clean that all up and, and they have the patience and, the, they just, uh, and I think, as far as I was concerned, you know, the hard data that demonstrates just how much, uh, how many times law enforcement faces uh, deadly threats, and and their ability to just withhold responding in a deadly way, uh, greatly impressed me. Uh, so I agree with you. Important show. Um, absolutely. And there is the other side of it as well, though. You know, you often hear about the bad things that cops do. But again, when you look at the total numbers of cops, you know, you have thousands and thousands doing these, this wonderful work and you can get one or two 
bad apples and to condemn them all because of one or two actions that could possibly happen but you know those stories can get distorted as well i think we do ourselves a disservice and we definitely do a disservice to some fine honorable people very well said there are good plumbers and bad plumbers good doctors and bad doctors you know that just happens period that's human nature but we tend to well, we don't rush to judgment and not go to the doctor because we've heard about a few bad doctors. Absolutely. So, you know, it's a crazy world sometimes. All right, in today's spotlight, I wish to discuss the idea of something I think of as the imitation game. One of the more famous quotes regarding imitation states, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Now, this is a quote by Charles Colton. However, Confucius had this to say about imitation. Imitation. <laughs> by three methods, we may learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is easiest. And third, by experience, which is bitterest. Now, by contrast, Herman Melville held imitation in disdain when he stated it is better to fail in originality than to succeed in imitation. That said, we are all imitators, and indeed, if we failed to imitate, we would without doubt fail to survive as a species. But where do we draw the line between the action of using someone or something as a model and authentic original thinking and or behavior? We learn to walk and talk largely as a result of imitation. Our society values imitation when it comes to hive-like thinking, but rejects the maverick who might argue against societal values. We all seek to fit in, if for no other reason than we are herd animals, dependent upon others for something, including acceptance, love, and security. We all find rejection undesirable and sometimes downright painful. As young people... We see adults do things and desire to emulate them. The tough guy or gals, you know, sees uh, the, the tough, you know, the John Waynes of the past. There we go. Who smoke seem to inspire those who want to feel tough to take on smoking. The debutante drinks a martini, so if this is our model, we too choose to drink a martini. Never mind the fact that we may hate the taste of gin or vodka, right, Ravinder? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the entrepreneur on Wall Street dresses in a suit and tie. So if this is our ambition, that's how we dress. The young Silicon Valley genius heading up his new startup company is in flip-flops with a loud-colored open-neck shirt hanging loosely over his denim jeans. And so if we wish to emulate him... That's the look we choose. We change our clothes, and like a chameleon, we can change our manifest personality. I have a friend, for example, who is a psychologist, and when she changes from her fine office wear to her boots and chaps and straddles her Harley, everything about her appears to change, including the nature of the language she uses. In other words, we take on roles suggestive of the activity or clothing that we wear according to what we have seen and are therefore imitating. 
Now, my question, how authentic is the nature of this sort of behavior? Is it even possible to be authentic in a world of imitation and role-playing? It's all a game, Robert Lang once wrote. We conform to be accepted. That's part of the game. We copy to project what we think we want to be. Again, part of the game. And the game goes on in so many aspects of our lives that perhaps we have, as Lang suggests, so lost ourselves as to live in a continuous state of self-alienation. I do know this. You can be aware of the game and still find it almost impossible not to play. Again, if for no more reason than if you let them know you know it's a game, they won't let you play. In Lang's word from his wonderful book, Knots, quote, They are playing a game. They are playing it, not playing a game. If I show them I see they are, I shall break the rules and they will punish me. I must play their game of not seeing I see the game. I hope you all see the game. Those are my thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, there's so much food for thought in what you were talking about, you know, the imitation part. We all see that, especially when we look back at pictures of ourselves when we were younger and some of the fashions that we wore that we wouldn't be seen dead in today but at the time everybody did it so we did it too and I think as time goes by you can start looking at the things that we do today and say is this really what I want to do or am I just fitting in and then when you're talking about you know the friend who rides a Harley you know I think about accents you know I am my background is Indian. I was brought up in England. Um, I went to college in Wales. I came over here. But all of the different accents that I can put on, um, I take on the personality. So if I put on an Indian accent, a gear shifts in my head and I can feel it. You know, the, the body movements change. Everything changes. If I put on the broad Cockney accent, I will stand differently. I think differently. So then, of course, the whole question has to come down to, well, how much is original? How much, how often do I betray myself just in order to fit in? So there is, there's a certain amount of balance. And I think we need to have respect for both sides of it, you know, trying to fit in. Well, that's good for society and stuff, but that can absolutely squash originality. So there's there's a time and a place for both. As I said, lots of food for thought. Well, the day shows about mirror neurons, and so maybe we'll we'll find out a little more about why we're such great copiers, okay? <laughs> All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show did feature Joseph Laughlin, and we discussed his book, Shots Fired, The Misunderstandings, Misconceptions, and Myths About Police Shootings. Wanda Road, everyone should listen to this show. Call your local police department and ask them to allow you to go on a ride-along with an officer. It will open your eyes, I promise you. Totally agree, Wanda, totally. Charles Road, loved your show. There's so much animosity directed at law enforcement today, and it is so unjustified. Thanks for clarifying the facts. Beth Road, that was so dreadful, spitting at those who had served so bravely. That really gets to me. But it also shows the effects of the herd 
they all egg each other on until they are acting in ways that betray themselves. Alan wrote, we tend to forget that our police are real people just like us, but they have to deal with situations that would just be too much for us. We simply fail to honor their service in the way that we should. Cynthia wrote, blue lives are black lives. I agree. All lives matter. I was stunned by the data shared in your show, so I checked on it. I even bought his book, and wow, what an eye-opener. The restraint our officers show on the face of life-threatening danger is incredible, and the data shows clearly that the police do not target one race above another. The media blows bad situations completely out of proportion, and as you stated, Eldon, once the bad news is out, even when it's false news, no one listens to the truth. So sad. Very well said, Cynthia. Moving on, Mary Jo wrote, Please pass along my thanks to your company for the Intertalk CD that I purchased. The music composition is wonderful and the message is powerful as I have listened to the CD several times and each time find that I have some profound awareness, often resulting in the tears, which I know to be effective and needed for me. I am deeply grateful to Intertalk for creating a CD that is so important and so critically useful in unwinding subconscious beliefs. And Brett wrote, I am a huge fan of Dr. Taylor and the Intertalk programs. I purchased the Pillars of Success package and have had a very good experience with it and am still using it regularly as my go-to mind rescue kit. Okay. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, with author, neuroscientist, Professor Gregory Hickok. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Gregory Hickok is a professor of cognitive science at University of California, Irvine, where he directs the Center for Language Science and the Auditory and Language Neuroscience Lab. He is the author of more than 150 scientific publications and the editor of two volumes on auditory and language neuroscience. He is also editor-in-chief of Psychonomic Bulletin and Review a leading quantitative cognitive science journal. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Gregory Hickok. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Right. We like well, to know three things on this show, Professor. Who is the messenger, of course? What is the message and how do we use it? To that end, please share with us what drives your passions and goals. Uh, I'm I'm a scientist. I'm deeply interested in how uh, how nature works, and I, in particular, the part of nature I study is humans. And I'm very interested in uh, how we are able to do what we can do, uh, how uh, our abilities evolved, and um, what is the nature of our of, of being human. Um, that, that's primarily what I'm interested in. You heard today's spotlight, Professor. What say you? Has our game of imitation driven us away from our authentic being, or is imitation fundamental to our survival and the notion of an authentic being just an imaginary piece of rubbish? <laughs> that, it's actually a, a very debatable question, the role of imitation in humans. And some people, uh, some scholars like Andrew Meltzoff, uh, has uh, called our species homo imitans, basically saying that um, our ability to imitate is really what makes us human. Um, right. Other people 
other people have um, questioned whether that is such a fundamental ability. Certainly, humans imitate uh, prodigiously, um, more more prodigiously than other species, as far as we can tell. But exactly what role it plays in various behaviors is, is uh, rather unclear uh, in some cases. Well, let me spin this by you if I can. Yeah. FMRI research has suggested that, as Benjamin Libet did years ago, that our conscious decisions are largely activated by the subconscious. Now, that's to say that the conscious mind might be said to be the tail of the dog, if you'll take that metaphorically speaking, for much of our daily thoughts, decisions, and activities. So I sit down to a television show in the evening, and I see two men begin a conversation with a glass of whiskey. And I think of my Macallan single malt scotch. I immediately get up to pour myself a glass. Is this conditioning, mirror neurons, a subconscious decision made as a result of suggestion, all some or none of the above? <laughs> you know, most human behaviors are not uh, boil downable, if I can say it, say it that way, uh, to a simple, uh, a simple thing, a one statement um, uh, ability. Um, for something like that, uh, you'd have to start thinking about um, uh, association learning. You'd have to think about habit formation. Um, you would learn about uh, motivational systems, uh, reward systems, and so on. And, uh, every human behavior, even as simple as getting up to get yourself a single malt whiskey, is is a complicated behavior under the hood. And I think you're right. We're we're not conscious of a lot of those. Uh, those those functions that are going on to drive our behaviors, but um, they're well tuned um, to uh, lead to adaptive behavior in our natural state. Uh, in our current state, where we're you know we, we have access to mind-altering substances and and so forth, uh, high sugar content foods, um, we some some of these circuits that have tuned our uh, our abilities to make us survive. Uh, eons ago uh, become maladaptive in some cases well let me ask you this about yourself personally because i know of mine okay and i did and we're going to talk about mirror neurons in your book in detail <laughs> here in a minute but if if i'm watching that movie and uh i'm in a theater house even and they're having a glass of wine at dinner i immediately think how good that would be i wish i had a glass of wine right here is that a mirror neuron activity, or is that, again, as you say, just explainable as you just did with a single malt scotch? I mean, why would I, if I see wine, think wine, see whiskey, think whiskey? Uh, well, it's not necessarily a mirror neuron thing. Um, <clears throat> again, it's it's uh, past learning. Uh, you've had experiences with wine and single malt whiskey, and that has led to a reward, activating your reward system. That behavior uh, then is um, basically facilitated as a result of that reward and things that remind you of the ability to perform that behavior or to, to activate those circuits to, to seek out wine um, or whatever uh, uh, are primed by seeing uh, related things. Uh, not, it doesn't necessarily have much to do with mirror neurons at all in those cases. Okay, now I know you're aware of this, but there, there are a lot of people that have really extended the idea of mirror neurons. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for someone to explain to me that, well, seeing the wine and because of your experience, your mirror neurons, you know, they're kind of co-linked. So I, I guess if, 
if we start thinking about mirror neurons in, in your book and the myth of uh, mirror neurons, generally speaking, the popular information informs us that a mirror neuron is a neuron that fires both when an animal acts and when the animal observes the same action performed by another. Thus, the neuron mirrors the behavior, it said, uh, as though the observer were itself acting. And allegedly, these neurons have been directly observed in primate species as well. So my question, do these neurons actually exist? I mean, your book suggests it's a myth. And if so, how has the popular myth gone wrong? So the, the neurons exist. It's not a, the, their existence is not a myth. Uh, the book refer the, the myth that the book refers to is the theory behind it that that mirror neurons are the basis of our ability to understand other people's actions, and as you mentioned, in extensions to all sorts of human abilities, from empathy to art appreciation to um, you know parenting skills. Um, so so it's the it's the theory that. Um, is mythical, um, that doesn't have evidence to support it. The, the cells exist, um, but they're not doing what the common story uh, says they're doing. Okay, so if I get into the New Age literature, are you saying that the idea of world peace coming about as a result of mirroring peace, thereby employing mirror neurons as some form of hogwash? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay. I wanted to get that out. Let me ask you this. Why did you write your book? Uh, I study speech and language. Uh, and <clears throat> one of the functions that mirror neurons were uh, extrapolated to and were um, suggested to explain was human language and speech ability. Uh, and so the, the mirror neuron theory and, and the, the body of research that um, it was generating started crossing over into my own research. And so uh, I started studying the, the behavior of these cells to see if they actually could explain aspects of speech and language, the kinds of things that I study. And I learned um, quite quickly that they don't uh, in my domain. And that led me to wonder whether the whole enterprise is, uh, is bankrupt, that it doesn't explain action understanding or empathy or anything else. And that's basically what I discovered. Um, at the time when I uh, realized this, there were very few people who were um, critical of, of mirror neuron theory. Uh, and so um, I started you know, talking about it in my scientific talks, and eventually some editor of a journal asked me to write a review paper in the journal uh, summarizing these arguments against the standard view of mirror neurons, and that was published. It became quite influential, and then I was encouraged by various people to write a book about it, expanding on that, and, and that's what I did. So that's kind of how it came about. Okay, now, not everyone agrees with you. Um, and I guess, you know, I have to play a bit of a devil's advocate in order to be honest here. Uh, but, for example, Arthur Glenberg, Arizona State University, uh, you're probably familiar with his, challenges directly your eight ideas that contradict uh, the, the general model, if you will, um, the, or what you call, I think you call it the eight problems for mirror neuron theory of action understanding in monkeys and humans. Uh, how do you answer someone like Glenberg? Uh, where I just look at the data. I mean, all of my arguments are data-driven. 
Um, so, you know, mirror neurons are claimed to be the basis of action understanding. And, and it might be worth going back and summarizing exactly what mirror neurons are and what they do. You, you provided a bit of a summary. Um, but it's important to recognize that these are motor cells. So, in other words, these are cells that respond when monkeys move. Um, uh, they uh, are in motor cortex, so they're in parts of the brain that are controlling motor abilities. Uh, grasping, in particular, is the, the ability they, um, uh, they are related to primarily. Um, and... Uh, and it was discovered that these cells will also fire while the animals, like you said, are looking at other um, uh, experimenters, usually, or other animals uh, generating similar behavior. So, so that's the basis of what they do. They're motor cells in general. So, and then the theory behind it is that the idea is that um, the way that we understand someone's action. So, if you're reaching for your coffee cup or something, and I see your your reach towards that cup, the way I understand what you're actually doing with that action is that I simulate your movement in my motor cortex through my mirror neurons, and because I know what I do when I'm generating that sort of movement, I can infer what you're doing, and that's basically the the mirror neuron theory of action understanding. Um, so this sort of theory makes predictions. It, it should predict that if I don't have the ability to um, control my motor system, for example, um, that is, if I if my mirror neurons are damaged, I should not be able to understand actions, uh, or in the case of speech, uh, since it's been extended to speech, I should not be able to understand speech if I can't produce speech myself. And if you look at the data, those predictions just fail. So my response to uh, criticisms of my view is is simply to point out the data again. The data just simply do not support the theory. One of the things that we like to do on this show, in fact, it's my favorite thing to do, Professor, is to bring on guests like yourself who are challenging ideas. I, I don't even want to call them a paradigm, but in a sense, mirror neurons have kind of taken that status. They've been so accepted and so generally rushed out there uh, by everyone that <clears throat> uh, so it's always a controversial subject when we get it you know we when we get the guest in here who has done the work like you're doing and one of the things that I've observed and I'm just going to ask you this point blank is that people seem to get invested in an idea and then if you come along and you show them that you well, you know, this idea isn't supported by the data. Uh, they resist that um, as though they have forgotten what data is or what science is. Have you found that to be true among any of your colleagues, peers, or those pundits who would challenge your perspective? Uh, yeah, it's fairly common uh, for people, especially people who have developed a theory. I mean, our, our scientific theories as scientists become kind of our intellectual children in a way, and um, it's hard to abandon them. Um, um, so it's often the case that people who develop a theory will stick to it uh, in spite of contradictory evidence and, and so on. Um, uh, so, yes, you see that all the time. Um, it's not always the case. Uh, but mostly the arguments that I have made, uh, they haven't convinced the people who originated the mirror neuron theory. They're still committed to their theory, uh, perhaps predictably. Um, but the folks who, who hadn't looked at the details of the data and were just aware of the theory and it 
you know, didn't seem to impact their own work so much. Um, they, they in general have been quite convinced by the arguments that I've made. Yeah, well, you weren't too kind to some of their theories in your book. We'll pick that up after the break. I've got to take a break now, Professor. We're speaking with Professor Gregory Hickok about his work and book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Talking Brains, one word, talkingbrains.org. Now, we have a video for you today featuring our, our guest addressing mirror neurons and imitation. So if you're not already in our chat room, now's a great time to get on over there. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Gregory Hickok about his work and book, The Myth of Mirror Neurons. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at talkingbrains.org. Now, normally we play our guest's favorite music at this point in the show and discuss why this particular piece of music is important to them and, of course, how it informs us about the nature or character of our guest. This can take five minutes or so of the show and can lead us away from the subject at hand. So unless I hear from many of you objecting to this change in our usual format, we will begin to use this time to direct more subject-relevant questions to our guests. So, all right, Professor, before the break, we were discussing the idea that maybe you have, uh, you've attacked a few ideas, <laughs> a few uh, researchers uh, in your own book. And, uh, and I'm reminded of a, of a um, review that appeared on Amazon about your book where the person writing this review basically said that uh, you were tearing down inconclusive works by other researchers for no other reason than to get yourself some limelight. Uh, it seems to me, you know, and I'm going to put this in a bit of context, for years I was in law enforcement, and a classic that comes to my mind, uh, we were making an arrest, uh, the perpetrator was uh, seen leaving 
a home uh, performing a burglary. His coat was, his coat pockets were full of contents from the house. And as we're cuffing this guy, and the, and the contents are falling out on the ground, he's telling us we're the criminals. Um, this is an unlawful arrest. Uh, this form of projection. I just, so when I, when I saw this review, I thought, you know, anyone that writes a review of this kind is not really doing anything more than an ad hominem attack, accusing you of ad hominem attacks. How do you deal with that sort of thing, Professor? Uh, mostly you ignore it. I mean, if someone is if someone is aware of the research program that I have and the issues that are at stake, um, then they take seriously I mean, what science does, which is to critically look at, at theories and ideas that are proposed and evaluate them empirically and, and uh, try to advance the field. And my, my assessment, I mean, it, it, it's not the case that I don't have a research program. So some people who just have, have become aware of me because of my criticisms of mirror neurons, some people think that I'm just a, a barn barn kicker, that I just uh, kick down barns and, and don't do any building. Um, but my career is based on building models of how speech and language uh, are uh, instantiated in the brain, how we came to have these abilities. Um, and the mirror neuron work that I've done is kind of a sideline. It was because, like I said, mirror neuron theory and, and uh, uh, empirical studies had started seeping into the language world, and um, that's my area, so I had to take it seriously. Um, I want to get to that in a second, but I, I have to ask you this. You're mm -hmm. quoted as saying, I remain a skeptic even of my own ideas. So does that include your interpretation of mirror neurons at this point in time as well, mm -hmm. Professor? I, it, the evidence is pretty solid um, <clears throat> against the, the standard mirror neuron claim. I've been looking at it from every angle. As I go through in the book, I, I lay out exactly uh, you know, what's at stake, and there's a lot at stake with mirror neurons. It's claimed to explain everything from language to autism and so on. Um, and so it was an important topic to take on. And, and so I took it very seriously and looked at the issues from every angle that I could come up with. Um, and every which way I looked at it, uh, the evidence, uh, the logic just didn't hold up. Um, and so, uh, you know, that that's why I took it. I took on the task of doing it. So let me, let me ask you this. I, I know a little bit about mirror and mirror neurons and, and language. Um, as far as my knowledge is concerned, and, and please flesh this out, um, the use of mirror neurons to explain language is just the process of imitation. So uh, maybe I grew up in the South, um, and uh, I ask what this is, and I'm told it's a crick. Oh, that's a crick. A stream of water is a crick. And then I get a little bit older, and I see the word in writing, and it's a creek, C-R-E-E-K, but I think creek, what is that, a sound? I've, I've heard the word creek before, like the floors creak. I, I, I then have to adjust the, the model by which I have learned to use crick and how the word creek is spelled until and unless I am moved in some environment where everyone says creek. So... My point is, 
mirror neurons may accompany language learning, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily needed for language learning. That's my understanding. So you challenge, if I understand you correctly, that the general model says that's an important aspect of mirror neurons. Have I got that right? Yeah, there's a few issues here. So one is that um, learning language is um, radically more complex than learning the names of words. And in fact, we when we learn names for things, we are kind of doing an imitation uh, ability. I mean, essentially what you have to do to learn a language is um, get yourself exposed to the sound pattern, the words that exist in the language, and memorize them by rote so that you can then reproduce them in the ways that you heard them. And that is a kind of imitation, in a sense. Um, right. The aspect of language that is much more interesting, I mean, that's a, an interesting problem uh, on its own, but language is much richer than that. And it's it's clear that kids don't learn just by imitation. So uh, it's the grammatical rules um, that you end up learning, abstracting the the patterns of sentence structure, of word structure, and so on, that turns out not to be explained um, by imitation. And you can see this in kids. Um, they, the kinds of errors they make reflect generalizations of patterns that they're hearing rather than just pure imitation. So if you hear a a, a young kid saying, uh, mommy goad to the market, or mommy goad to work, or whatever. Um, that can't be something that they just imitated, because adults don't walk around saying things like that. So they're picking up patterns, in this case of past tense formation, extending them to new forms, and generalizing. So it's much richer than just pure imitation um, with respect to language. Now, another, another issue is Mirror, the claim with respect to mirror neurons is specifically that they, that via motor simulation, it enables comprehension. So kind of what you were talking about there was not necessarily a comprehension function. It was instead uh, taking sensory information in, like the sound pattern of the word creek or crick, and then translating that into a movement so that you can reproduce that, so that you can say it yourself. And in fact, these circuits, these sensory motor circuits that mirror neurons are a part of, um, play a much bigger role, uh, in fact, a fundamental role, I argue in the book, in producing actions, including speech. It's not that they're involved in comprehension or understanding, it's that they're critically involved in producing. After all, they are in the motor system. So. The, the mirror neuron claim got the sensory motor relation precisely backwards, and that's what I argue in the book, trying to reconstruct a, a viable theory of what mirror neurons are doing and how we communicate, and that's the second half of the book, essentially. Let me ask you this, Professor. Your model of mirror neurons, Share with us what you uh, feel these mirror neurons, what, exactly what are their limitations and what are their primary applications? Yeah, so, so they're fundamentally motor cells. Um, and <clears throat> it's interesting that mirror neurons were discovered in the context of the, uh, the group in Parma, Italy, who were the people who discovered it. Um, they had they had been doing a lot of fantastic research on motor control, how we use information about the shapes of objects to guide our reaching towards those objects, which turns out to be a, an interesting and complicated problem, even though it seems simple. 
Um, and they were studying how monkeys reach for and grasp objects. And they had already discovered in motor cortex, in, in the vicinity of where mir mirror neurons were discovered, that cells respond while the monkeys reach for objects, as well as when the monkeys simply observe objects, static objects, not actions. Uh, and their interpretation of that was that these cells were essentially providing a translation service, that you were taking information about object shape and, and using that information to select from what they call the vocabulary of grasp types. So if you're reaching for an orange, you shape your hand in one particular way, and you use the shape of the orange to decide what your grip is going to be like, as opposed to if you're reaching for a paperclip, you're going to use the shape and, and size information of the paperclip to guide that action. And this is a, a function of these motor circuits. When they discovered uh, mirror neurons, this was a slightly different thing. It had to do with observing actions instead of objects, but fundamentally the same properties exist. They responded during the reaching, uh, and they also responded during the observation. What's interesting is, as you know, we not only have to select actions on the basis of the objects that we're interacting with, when we're interacting with humans or other uh, animate objects, we have to select actions on the basis of what other animals do. So if I were to stick my hand out in a handshake gesture, that's an action that would uh, most likely cause you to, um, to select a corresponding mirror-like action. It's all about selecting appropriate actions for what you're observing, not for understanding the actions that you're actually observing. The understanding part is complicated in itself, uh, and involves a lot of brain circuits, but doesn't necessarily involve mirror neurons. The many misinterpretations of the extent to which, uh, you know, mirror neurons have been used to explain, as you mentioned earlier, uh, or as we have discussed, everything from peace and joy to, you know, greed, I suppose. Um, what do you think? I mean, I guess my question is, how how did, you know, humans get so excited about mirror neurons and these elaborate explanations? Yeah, that that's an interesting story. I mean, if, if you start, the basics are, like I said, very simple. It's just some cells in monkey motor cortex that responds during the perception during grasping of an object and the perception of the experimenter grasping the same object. That's the data. That's that's just, those are the facts. The whole mirror neuron craze resulted from an interpretation of those facts. And as we've discussed, their basic interpretation of what those cells are doing in the monkey had to do with understanding the meaning of the actions by motor simulation. So that's the theory. Uh, but once you have that, you can extend it um, logically to other domains. So you think about language. Language is a kind of action. We're producing speech. So maybe something like mirror neurons are involved in understanding language. Um, uh, there's a imitation is another example. So imitation is uh, something that, um, as you mentioned, people have lots of uh, ideas about um, uh, in terms of their importance to human behavior. And, and imitation might be supported by mirror neurons, and, and so that ability might be explained. There's another ability that is very interesting in human research um, called so-called mind reading, which isn't as mystical as it sounds. It's basically making inferences about what 
people are thinking. So as you watch someone behave, say fishing through their pockets or their pocketbook to um, while they're standing next to their car, you can infer that perhaps they've lost their keys and they're looking for them. You're you're essentially trying to mind read what they're thinking about, and that gives you some clues as to what's driving their behavior. So this is a these are this language and mind reading, um, or also called theory of mind and imitation domains, are big complicated areas in psychology um, that had theories in the, in their own right um, and lots of complications. Here, mirror neurons uh, potentially had the, 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 the possible explanation to provide a, a simple explanation for how we can do all these things that humans do. And, and so people started extrapolating it to language and mind reading and imitation. Uh, and from there, uh, once you have captured those abilities, you think about things like empathy. Uh, empathy is kind of like putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, you're basically simulating their experience. And so, well, that sounds kind of like mirror neurons, so maybe mirror neurons are responsible for empathy. And then if you think about empathy and language and mind reading and imitation, those are things that people with autism tend to have trouble uh, with. And so maybe mirror neurons explain, um, uh, you know, uh, the basis of autism, that their their mirror system is broken, and that led to a theory about the broken uh, mirror neuron theory of autism. And so you can build, if you, if you take the basic logic of what mirror neurons are doing and extrapolate them, the logic works out pretty well. The problem is that the first inferential step, that, that mirror neurons are the basis of action understanding, turned out to be correct. Uh, incorrect, I'm sorry. And so the whole house of cards just fell once you look at the fundamental assumptions. What do you see as the alternative? Let's take autism since you just touched on it. So if mirror neurons, broken mirror neurons have nothing to do with autism, uh, and then that, that's kind of a popular idea out there today. I mean, it's that or it's uh, vaccination. Well, you know all the theories. What's the alternative in your view? Yeah, so there's actually a very interesting hypothesis. Uh, it's called um, uh, the intense world sim syndrome. Um, it's I have a chapter on autism in my book that talks about all these things. Um, and essentially the idea is that what's wrong in autism is a hypersensitivity to all sorts of uh, sensory and other stimulation, including emotional situations. So we typically observe behaviors in people with autism as, as withdrawing. They withdraw from social situations. Uh, they don't appear to show empathy. Um, sometimes they're not good at, at language and so on. It looks like they can't perform these abilities. But the interesting hypothesis that turns this idea on its head is that they're exceptionally good at empathy, for example, uh, mm -hmm. so good that it pays uh, in in, a in distress, and so they turn away from it. So think about think about what you would do if you were oversensitive to sound. Um, you wouldn't engage it. You would kind of cover your ears and walk away from it. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you can you can get deficits in some ability like empathy or language, not because you are incapable of of those abilities, but because it's too intense for you. And that's an idea that is explored um, by uh, researchers in in Europe. Um, uh, and, and that I talk about uh, in in the book. Um, I, th I think it's a much more promising theory of autism than, still untested uh, in detail, but a much more promising theory of autism than um, the mirror neuron, uh, the broken mirror theory. 
Is there data to support uh, that that idea? Yeah, there's. Um, it, it's circumstantial in a way. So there are rat models, believe it or not, of autism, um, and the neural circuits of these rats have been studied uh, in quite uh, um, qu- quite detailed way, uh, and the circuits show hypersensitivity and so on. Um, and some of the the abilities of people with autism are are consistent with that. Um, so there there's circumstantial supportive evidence. The problem is that people haven't taken that hypothesis uh, too seriously yet, um, and it hasn't been investigated deeply as in contrast to other theories, which tend not to to work so well. It seems to me just common sense. I mean, uh, and and I think some of the best theories come out of common sense, but the that theory is so much stronger than the mirror neuron theory that it would have been investigated first. Yeah, well, it, sometimes it's hard to get past appearances. So if you look at someone with autism who doesn't seem to engage with people and doesn't seem to show empathy and isn't, you know, all they seem, they, they don't imitate well, um, they show stereotypical behaviors, it looks like it looks like a deficit. It looks like they're incapable of empathy or human engagement and so on. And you talk to parents and, and you see that this isn't always the case, that parents' personal experience with their is, is much different than the outward appearance. Um, but it's hard for people to get past that and, and to think of it not as a, um, as a deficit, but as a, an excess of these things. And, and it really needs to be studied. What our understanding uh, of autism isn't great, and, and we need a paradigm shift, I think. Okay. You know, one of the things that I found uh, about your work that was most uh, most important to me, if I were to say in my own words, well, the message to the lay person out there regarding this book, one of the most important things I'd say has to do with our understanding of, of uh, you know, autism. What would you tell our audience? How do they use this message? What is the message from your book that is usable to the general audience? Um, Well, I mean, there are some general ideas. Just, you know, if you hear a popular scientific idea, don't necessarily assume that it's true. Keep questioning. Keep digging. Be curious. um, You know, question question ideas that are out there, including mine. I encourage people to look, look at my book and see if there are things that are wrong with it and and try to, you know, push the field forward. That's what science is all about. Um, I think more interestingly, though, that the whole book, it, Mirror Neurons is the thread that I pull through the whole book, but it's really about human communication and, um, you know, what enables us to communicate? How does how does language work? Um, how, do, how are concepts represented in the brain? Um, where do they come from? And these are all interesting fundamental questions in um, in cognition and our human mental abilities that are fundamental. Um, and I think um, looking at a theory like mirror, mirror neurons and its explanation for some of these things and contrasting it with um, the, in my view, more interesting ideas uh, regarding uh, where all these abilities come from is, is an instructive, enlightening thing to learn about ourselves. All right. I'm sorry, Professor. We are out of time. I appreciate you coming to the show, your work and your willingness to share it with us for everybody out there. The book again, The Myth of Mirror Neurons, 
the website, talkingbrains.org. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.